one split decision that quick can change the whole course of your life and have you away from your family for the rest of your life. I don't even remember. I think it was like a 38 or something. He just showed it to me real quick. Anybody running this house? Anybody play with you? Say anything crazy to you? Shoot them. Appreciate you for having me. Hey, well, we're glad to have you here. We wanted to start off just by, if you could just introduce yourself and, and tell us, you know, a little bit of where you're from. Uh, my name is Bill. I'm 28 years old. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. And growing up in, in Detroit, how many people were living in your, in your household, Bill? It was probably like, it was probably like a good seven at all times. Oh, wow. So it was a packed house then. What was uh, your youth like back in Detroit? Was it uh, rough schools? What kind of what kind of area were you in? Yeah, it was uh, it was it was very rough. Um, it was rough growing up. I mean, all of my, you know, all of my influences was pretty much my older brothers and people in the neighborhood. And, um, you know, everybody was in the streets pretty much. You know what I'm saying? They they had no understanding or guidance themselves, so they couldn't really guide me to do, you know, the right thing or nothing. So. You know, it was just me growing up, understanding the streets, really. Were you getting into trouble back then? I wasn't. I guess I was, but I was about to say I guess I wasn't because, you know, the things that may be considered trouble to my household, it was considered normal, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I, might, I might get into a fight or something. And, uh, you know, I don't get in trouble for that when I go home. My big brothers, they they, they like, did you whoop his ass? You know what I'm saying? Type of situation. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I hear that. You ended up leaving Detroit, going to Georgia. How old were you when you made that move? When we left Detroit, I had to be about 12, probably just getting ready to turn 13. I brought you what what was the decision for Georgia did you have people out there it was an easier transition or man we had nobody in Georgia what what my mom just she uh see before we moved she just used to leave and like go to random places because she I guess she knew she wanted to move but she didn't know to where so she started coming uh visiting Alabama and visiting uh, Georgia. So, you know, she met some friends in Alabama. So we used to go there sometimes, you know, back and forth from Detroit. We might just go for a weekend or something. So she accumulated friends there and uh, she didn't want to go to Alabama for whatever reason. And she just picked the state right next to it. We came here not knowing nothing about it, not knowing nobody. When you were, uh, when you were told that you were moving to Georgia, 
were you were you looking forward to getting out of Detroit and good with the move or were you disappointed that you'd be leaving pretty much everything behind that you already knew I didn't really like it because you know like my childhood friends people I went to you know grew up on the same street with you know they 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 still there that's all I know and uh my dad actually had just got out of prison probably I don't even know if it was two weeks before we left. So, you know, that little time was the only time I was really like bonding with him, getting to know him. And then one day my mama pulled up in a U-Haul truck and said, pack that shit up, we gone. Oh shit. Did you meet your father previous before he went to prison? Well, he went to prison when um when I was little. I was probably like, I think I was like one, so I don't remember, but once I turned nine, I do remember that was the first time that I ever talked to him. I talked to him on the phone and then probably a couple months later, my mom, you know, once everything got approved with his visitation situation, we went and visited him. All right. You get to Georgia and you're 12 or 13. What's life like in Georgia? You know you know, my mom was saying that she wanted to get us away from Detroit um, because she had another child. My little brother was born. And she say that Detroit was too rough. You know, it, it's too thugged out. She didn't want to raise no more kids there. So she wanted to come to a quote, quote, better city. So we go to Georgia, specifically to an area called the Bluff. We knew nothing about it, we knew nobody. It was just a landlord that was willing to take cash. He didn't give a damn about no check stub, no background, no none of that. He just, <laughs> you got money, you can move in. And uh, man, we got out there and it reminded me so much of Detroit. I'm talking about the street we lived on, look identical. The, the crackheads walking around, shooting the corner stores, everything reminded me of Detroit. So it was pretty much just more of the same, but a different state. What kind of trouble were you getting yourself into in Georgia? When we came to Georgia, I was definitely 13 then. You know, I was definitely fighting in school. Me and my brothers jumping people in school jumping people in the streets. And uh, that that actually that same year is when I got my first pistol. And I started, I just became a, a robbery maniac. Wow. Just got fucking heathenish with that <laughs> shit, eh? <laughs> oh shit, I know what you mean, man. <laughs> How hard was it for a kid your age to get a gun at that time? Well, the area that we lived in, it was relatively easy, but I, I didn't go nowhere looking for it. Actually, it came to me. Um, my big brother had a situation going on with some people. They had some beef going on, and um, he was getting ready to leave the house. I was in there playing the game, and he brought it to me. He just showed it to me real quick. I don't even remember. I think it was like a 38 or something. He just showed it to me real quick. He like, hey, anybody running this house? Anybody, uh, you know, you go outside, anybody play with you, say anything crazy to you, shoot them. Look, he gave me like a 20-second tutorial. He said, this is how you hold it. 
this how you aim it. You pull the trigger, that's how you shoot it. I got to go. And he gave it to me and left out the house. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> now, quick rundown with it then. <laughs> you ended up being sentenced to nine years. And I mean, you don't have to go into the particulars as to what happened if you don't want to. Is there anything during that that moment that you can tell us as to why you ended up in, in prison for nine years? Uh, yeah, most definitely. Um, <laughs> I was just laughing because I said that I became a, a, a robbing maniac and that's the exact thing that landed me there for that much time. Damn. <laughs> How old were you when um, you got charged with the gun? I was 19. Was was that your first charge? Yeah, that was my first charge. Never been in jail before, never been in uh, juvenile, none of that. That was the very first charge. They must have hit you with multiple felonies then for you to get sent up, correct? Or was it just the one charge of robbery? Yeah, I definitely had uh, <laughs> I definitely had a lot of felonies at first. <laughs> After after your sentence to nine years, what's your initial thought when you hear a judge lay, lay down a sentence like that for your first ever time being charged? What what was going through your mind when you heard that sentence? First thing that was going through my mind, man, for real, was my little brothers. I was thinking about them and I was thinking about my mama because, you know, Pretty much all of us grew up without a father figure in the picture, whether due to prison or due to, you know, they just don't want to be there. So I really was like my mom's help. I used to really help her a lot with my little brothers. I think one was nine and one was six. So when I got the time, that's the only thing I was thinking about. I was just like, damn, man, because, you know, my other brothers, they really pretty much still in the streets at this time. So I'm like, damn, I don't want them to, you know what I'm saying, get caught up in that. But like, I used to hide that type of life from them. You know what I'm saying? When I come around them, it's just games. We finna play, we finna joke, wrestle, you know, but my other brothers, they just like wide open with it. They don't give a damn. <laughs> that, that was the only thing on my mind. Like, damn, I don't want my brothers to get caught up in this cycle too. Do you think that you might have took on a bit of a father figure role to your little brothers then? I, I know that for a fact. I mean, I parent teacher meetings. I used to do all that. I used to take them places, bombs. Like when I used to come in the house, the excitement used to be so real. When I open the door and they see who it is, they just go to screaming, Bill, they all go to running up to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. They love you for sure then, huh? Yeah. What kind of support did you have when you were on the inside for being keeping in touch with with your brothers, your family? Did you have access and, and were you able to see them as much as you were able to over that nine years? Far as support, I had a, a, a pretty great support system. Um, my mom, my brothers, of course, and uh, one of my homeboys go by the name of D.C., and it, it's so crazy because when I was out on the streets, we was cool, but we wasn't as tight as we grew over the time, you know, by him riding with me and showing me that he fucked with me. And uh, like visitation, 
my mom came out of that whole time. I think I probably seen her about five times. But after the first two times, her and one of my little brothers, you know, they just bust out crying so bad that I told her for years, like, don't come. I actually went to the counselor's office and took her and all my little brother's names off the uh off my visitation because that shit hurt me every time I see them. And when it's time to go, they bust out crying. And I know I got to go back in here. So I took them off for years, man, and probably around like 2017, 18, I just went ahead and put them back on. And uh, my dad, once he got his probation situation cleared up, he he came through a few times. Yeah, it must have been real hard for your, your mom and your little brothers looking up to you and having to come visit you under such circumstances. You know, you were probably like a hero to them and you ain't there to help guide them through that time. It, it must have been hard on every one of your family members. Yeah, most definitely. So what was what was your, your first day like? Your first day that you're in prison? Can you walk us through? My first day, I was in the, uh, Jas- the Jackson Diagnostics, but before that, I'm in the county jail that night, and uh, I'm in there knocked out sleep, and the officer wake me up. They like, pack up. You leaving tonight. Man, I got nervous as hell. I'm talking about my stomach got butterflies. I'm thinking, I'm instantly thinking about all type of crazy scenarios, like, as soon as I go in there, somebody's going to try to stab me. You know, I'm just thinking about all kind of crazy stuff. And, uh, you know, I got on the bus. I think that ride you know, probably about four or five hours. And when I got in there, it's like people just walking around everywhere, you know, people that's incarcerated. And, you know, we going through classes. We're we're like with officers. I'm not just by myself because they got to take us to orientation, take us to medical, take us to the barbershop. All your hair get cut bald. Everybody go through diagnosis, you get in the bald head. I don't care what hair you got. And, uh, when they finally took me into the dorm, I went into, uh, this unit was locked down. Somebody had just got stabbed recently. And um, luckily, thank God, they put me in the cell by myself. I was in the cell by myself for a while. And you know, that gave me time to kind of get to know people a little bit, cause people walking by, you know, everybody gonna come up to you, where you from, you know, what you locked up for, all that type of stuff. And it's bars. So you could scream out the door, but the, the people that was out was like the orderlies, the, the cleanup crew, the barbers. So it probably was like the whole dorm was locked down, but it was probably like a good nine or 10 people out walking around. So, you know, that 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 part there wasn't too bad. Where uh, did you have people run up on you right away asking if you were affiliated and seeing trying to check your papers and everything well when we when we first came in with the officer when we first came in with the officer like they was just posted up just looking you know everybody got their arms crossed they just looking at you ain't nobody say nothing then and when they um when they assigned us to our rooms like i say it's bars it ain't no closed door so a person can walk straight up. You ain't got no privacy. They can walk straight up, talk to you through the bar. So once I made it to my room, man, 
I probably wasn't in the room for 30 seconds once the door closed. Probably 30 seconds, like two people pulled up and was like, um, one of them was like, what's up, bro? What they call you? So I told them, C-Bill, see, I usually go by C-Bill, but people kept having me mistaken as a member of the Crips. So I just, mm. took, like, just called me Bill, but... He was like, uh, he was like, what's up, bro? What they call you? I was like, CB. He was like, where you from? I was like, Detroit. And it's like, he tried to put some press. He talking about, you ain't in Detroit. Where you from in Georgia? I was like, damn, you know, but big old dude, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I'm like, shit. I'm, you know, I told him like I was in the Atlanta area. So he said, uh, they call you CB, what you crip? And he was Crip, so at the same time he said it, he stuck his hands through the bars, like trying to do, you know, a certain type of handshake with me or whatever. I told him, I was like, nah, I ain't Crip. That's just my name. And he was like, oh, okay. He just walked off. Was there any pressure? Like, were you affiliated with anyone at that time when you went in? Yeah. Was there any pressure from any of the other guys, like the other gangs, like trying to get you to fold or anything or was it is it even like that there nah it ain't it ain't like that there it's pretty much a situation like um you know i the second guy you know i told you the first guy walked off so the second guy asked me he was like you affiliated so i told him yeah gd so he immediately went to hollering somebody name come find out he was a blood so i learned that what they do is when you come in the first day, you know, somebody pull up on you ASAP and ask you, are you affiliated? Now these people been in the dawn with each other, so they cool with each other, they know each other. So if you come in and say, yeah, I'm Crip, and I'm not Crip, I'ma just holler for a Crip to come holler at you real quick, you know what I'm saying? So uh, he asked me, was I affiliated? I told him that I was GD. He called one of the guys that was GD, they came down there, uh, he didn't even say nothing. He just stuck his hand through the door, I guess, to make sure that I know how to do the handshake. So I did it with him. And then he went to talking to me. He asked me, what's my name, where I'm from? And when I told him immediately, he was like, you got your paperwork with you? I was like, yeah. He was like, let me see that. So I was like, you know, at first I'm kind of like, what? Let you see my paperwork? Because I'm like, this is my privacy. You know what I'm saying? And he like, you know, he explained it to me. He was he was cool about it. He was just like, bro, I got to make sure, you know, you're not in here claiming what I'm claiming and you locked up for something crazy. So, uh, you know, I, I gave him the paperwork and he left. I ain't hear nothing from nobody for probably, uh, probably like three, four hours straight. Then he came back, gave me the paperwork back. And um, he asked me, like, he asked me for a, for a name or a phone number where the area I'm from with somebody that can vouch for me. So I gave him some information and he walked off again. He went and got on the phone, I guess. And he came back like 20 minutes later. And he was like, you good, bro. And then he just started kicking it with me, talking to me. Are, are you constantly on edge? Like, is there ever a day in prison that goes by at the end of it? You're like, all right, that was an okay day. You know, like I didn't get, uh, you know, didn't get attacked and, you know, none of this shit happened. Like was, uh, you know. I was most definitely on edge every single day, but 
at the end of the night, I used to feel that way every day. Like, you know what? This was all right. But every single day, I can honestly say, after I'ma just I'ma just give about a a, a two-week exception for the first two weeks. Every single day for nine years, with an exception of two weeks, I walked around with a knife on me every single day. Was it needed in there too? Like were people getting cut up? It was most definitely needed. Um, I probably seen a handful of situations where people was getting like cut across the face. They call it a buck 50. I probably seen a handful of those, but it was just a whole lot of stabbing going on in any type of weapon, really. Like, like when I say I had a knife on me every day, I'm really speaking for like just a weapon in general. Cause I know sometimes like that police will come shake down. I lose my knife. They find it. And I can't get another one right now. So I might cut a piece of metal off my box and it'll just be used as a slap stick. Like I'm gonna just hit you with it, you know, mm -hmm. but every day for nine years, I definitely had a weapon on me. Every day, it was definitely needed. Out of the whole nine years, I think for 14 months, it wasn't needed. I was sent to a, uh, I was sent to a medium security prison uh, years down the line, once I got my security lowered, um, and it was sweet, man. It was so sweet. I'm talking about a 14 months. I didn't see not one stabbing or none of that, but I kept getting caught with uh, with cigarettes, weed, and cell phones. So they raised my security and sent me back to the high security prison. So out of that whole bid, probably 14 months, I was kind of chilling. Every time you got caught with a knife, would they add on to your sentence as well? No, they don't. They don't. You know, I know some other states probably different, but in Georgia, they don't do that. What they do, it just depends on the um. It just depends on the staff, how they feeling, but they don't give you extra time. They may take you to the hole. They may just write you up. And to be honest, sometimes they may just take it and be like, you need to leave them damn knives alone and they might not even write it up or nothing like that. You know what I'm saying? But I think what, what had them so fed up with me is because the type of prison I was at, like I told you, it was sweet. You didn't really need that. But I'm so paranoid minded from the prison. I just, the two prisons I left before this. So it's like, I don't care how cool and calm y'all seem, y'all seem. I got to have my knife in my pocket because I don't know at any given moment somebody might try something. Absolutely. And that, that brings me to the next topic here, mental health and in the prison system. Like it's, it's no secret that mental health is a major issue in almost like pretty much every prison at any time while you were in there, did you ever like feel for yourself? Like, nine years is fucking forever in here. What am I looking forward to in here? Like, is there, did you have some supports in there to keep you motivated to, to just push through focus and get, get the shit done with? You know, my only motivation, my, my whole time pretty much was, um, you know, like I say, my family and, thinking about my son. That was the only motivation I pretty much had. But far as mental health, I most definitely had my times of feeling like 
I'm about to lose it. I done had times of feeling like I done lost it. I done lost my mind. I'm crazy. Fuck it. And, um, you know, it never lasts long. I always snatch myself. I always get back on track. But, uh, yeah, I was actually on the mental health caseload. I was labeled as mental health level two. Probably about five years in is the first time I got on it. They put me on it. And you have regular access to, like, a therapist or or anybody like that in there? Yeah, well, they got they got what they call um, mental health counselors. It's a thousand of them in there. You could talk, you could talk to any single one of them, but you got one assigned to you. But usually, anytime you tell the officer, like any given time, I need to talk to my mental health counselor. They get on the phone right there and there and call. Hey, he said he need to talk to you. He going through something. and they tell the officer, let him come. Come on, send him out. Let him come. So you pretty much had good access to the um mental health, but that was at that that one specific prison I was speaking about where it was sweet at. But I went to another prison on mental health that wasn't so sweet, and those counselors didn't give a fuck about you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I heard in some states that you maybe get one 45-minute meeting every week or every other week to speak to a mental health counselor. And, and that was it. If you were going through something between that time, you're dealing with it on your own. You said one forty-five meeting once a week. If wow. that, maybe two times or once every two weeks. They got it good. Then you know, you know the 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 scheduling in Georgia on the mental health caseload is every sixty days. Wow! Every sixty days, the counselor used to send me what they call a call out. And uh, like they send it in the mail whenever the officer do the mail, the counselor have been sent like a little farm down there and it just got your name, your age, stuff like that, your, your prison ID number. And it tells you report to mental health tomorrow. And um, I used to get one of those every 60 days. And I used to go in there, talk to the counselor. She like, you all right, whatever the case is. But, you know, and if you at the prisons that they don't really give a damn, they might not ever even meet you. They might just document it like they had a meeting with you, and that's it. Oh, damn. I'm sure uh, most people who have a release date, they tell them th- themselves, things are going to change once I get out of here. Like, Do you remember the day that you looked at yourself in the mirror and you really thought about the situation you were in? What's going on? And and you said to yourself, I have to change the way I'm living once I get out of here. Do you remember that moment? Yeah, most definitely. I, I was actually in the county jail when I had that moment, man. <laughs> I think I was locked up for about eight months. And I just went to reflecting on my life so much. See, you know, I grew up rough, but... I've always had common sense. I've always knew better. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I was doing so much wrong, so much wrong, and I have always believed, you know, throughout my life that there is a God of this world. So I used to think, like, damn, I keep doing so much wrong. I know it's going to come back on me some type of way. And, um, you know, after doing so much, 
at one point, I just wanted to get away from everybody. I wanted to get away. Man, I, I so-called myself trying to change my life, moved away, went to another little school. And then when I graduated and came back, I just got caught back up in it. So I was in the county jail and I was thinking about it. I said, damn, I went and changed my life, man. I went and tried to do the right thing and came right back around these same people and got caught up in some bullshit. So how did you, after being released after nine years, not fall back into those patterns where most people like I have nowhere to go. So you end up gravitating back to the people that, you know, and coincidentally, the people that are probably involved in you getting in trouble. You know, what, what was that first step when you're released? Where, where were you going to go? Well, when I seeing that I was maxing out, you know, which means I'm doing all of my time. I'm not paroling out. I pretty much could have went wherever I wanted to go. I didn't have a specific, well, he got to be over there. It was like, long as I get them folks an address, it don't matter. So I just knew, you know, just thinking about the same thing, really, my son and my two little brothers. I'm just thinking like I was telling myself over and over, sometimes all day, you cannot get out and fuck up no matter what, I don't care what happened, how hard it get, you cannot risk your freedom again, no matter what. And um, I got out, my brothers came and picked me up, my two brothers, and uh, they so shout out and crazy, don't give a damn. When I, <laughs> when I walk out the front door, I smell the weed, and he's right. <laughs> He's literally parked in front of the little gate. I actually got a video of it on my TikTok. He's in front of the gate. There's two officers right there and they just sitting in the car, all the windows rolled down, they smoking weed. I'm surprised the officers ain't say nothing. They just didn't give a damn. So, you know, when I got in the car, he telling me like, yeah, I bought you some clothes, you can come to my house. You know, this is my big brother. I love him, but I looked over at him while he was driving. I was like, shit, I ain't trying to come to your house because I know I'm bound to go to jail at your house. And uh, <laughs> my my dad was telling me to come uh, with him, but he's in Detroit. And uh, I kind of did want to leave and go, but, you know, my family that been holding me down, they right here in Georgia, so I didn't want to just leave and do that. So I... Uh, yeah, I went to my mom's house, my mom and my little brothers now, and you know, they ducked way off, probably about an hour and a half from where I was at, is a place I never been to, total stranger to it, so I felt like that'd be the best bet, and when I got here, and man, she's such a blessing, she had surprised me with a, uh, she surprised me with like a, a little truck, she had bought me a car already while I was in there, um, and you know, open, pretty much welcomed me in her house and told me as long as I needed to stay, you know. When, when someone's released from prison after being in for so long, you, no doubt you, you've seen shit in there that you're never going to forget. And same with millions of other inmates that were in there. They're never going to forget the shit they saw. Does the DOC have anything in place for meant for continuing mental health? So you have some place to, to get out and speak about like it's I bet you it's on the same lines as PTSD. Some of the shit that that goes on 
that you have to live with and relive over and over again. Like, does the DOC provide that or is it up to you pay out of pocket if you want to go and talk to someone? Um, I think for the people that is on, like from my understanding, level four and level five mental health, I think people that's on that, they give them forced meds because they like out of their mind for real. Like the police will hold them down and get them their medicine. They can't be around regular population. They're secluded at all times. I think for people like that, they got something lined up immediately because these people really has like serious problems. Like, like people, uh, you know what I'm saying? But for people who's like level two, that may just just suffer from depression or PTSD or something like that. They don't got nothing lined up. Um, actually, when I was signing my release papers, I was still labeled level health, level two mental health. And the lady told me, um, she said, we already transferred your mental health caseload over to the free world mental health in the area that you're going to. And she said, um, as soon as you get out and go see your probation officer, he'll let you know exactly what's going on because they got to send some paperwork over to him about you going to see mental health on the streets. So when I got out and went and seen my probation officer the next day, I asked him about it. And he's like, what? There ain't nobody sent me nothing. I said nothing to me about nothing got to do with mental health. And that's when I knew they was some bullshit. They ain't did none of that. <laughs> It's been literally what, like 36 days that you've been released for then, right? Is it, you said like in, um, at the end of May? I got released on May 25th. Today is July 1st. So it's been about 30 something days. Yeah. So, and you're so, not messing around either. You get out and you got a YouTube channel. You're, you're helping out kids. Like you wasted no time. Yeah, absolutely. You know what's funny about that? Um, I actually made the YouTube probably a month. Now, I'm going to say probably about a week or two before I got out. I was on TikTok, like trying to be a comedian, just telling jokes. And everybody from TikTok was telling me, like, go to YouTube and, and do your jokes and tell your stories. So I think I released two videos while I was in there and it didn't do nothing. I'm talking about, I think, I think when I got out of prison, I probably had like 30, maybe 40 at the max subscribers on YouTube. I probably had a um, hundred views on each one of them. So I had kind of gave up on YouTube for a minute. I was just like, fuck it, that, that YouTube stuff ain't, that ain't working. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Well, your YouTube channel's fucking blowing up now. And yeah. I read the comments on some of the videos and, and people are really feeling your message, you know? What was that main motivator behind sharing your story with the youth, like trying to get them on that right path so they don't go down that same route? Um, I think the, the, the main thing that was like motivation for me to try to help these guys, and you know, is as I got closer to getting out, I've always kept in mind of my little brother's age. You know, like he is 
18 right now. So like two years before I got out, he's 16 and you can get tried and sent to a real grown man's prison at 17 in Georgia. So I was surrounded by so many little dudes that was like, yeah, I'm 17. I'm like, damn, how much time you got, little bro? Life sentence. I'm like, damn, what did you do? You know what I'm saying? He like, man, it ain't even supposed to happen like that. So I was seeing so many people um, in there that just reminded me of my little brother so much, you know, age-wise. And I used to talk to them in there and just tell them, like, a better way to move in prison, to have less problems. And, you know, for the ones that didn't have life sentences, I was telling them, like, better ways to move once they get out. And it's like, it seemed as if they was taking heed to it. Like, it reached the point where I might be in the room sleep. And one of them guys might come to my room and, and just be like, bro, I need to talk to you, bro. And, and not even just the young ones, but, you know, some older people, too. Like, I need to talk to you, bro. Man, this and this and this. And, you know, I talk to them. And they like, man, appreciate that. I feel a way whole lot better. That makes sense. And, you know, whatever I recommended is how they go move about a situation. You know, I knew then I felt like I had a gift, like a, some type of influence then. So. I was like, man, I'm going to try it. I'm going to just give it a shot. So before I got out, I pretty much knew that I'm finna try to talk to some of the youth. And, uh, you know, sometimes, man, people just need somebody to talk to. Sometimes people need somebody to hear them out, to to let them know it's going to be all right. Or, you know, they may just need that that real, that straight up talk. Because I'm not sugarcoating nothing. I'm not giving nobody a pity party. I'm giving it to you straight raw whether you 17 or you 47, you know what I'm saying? And sometimes people need that. So I feel like I'm going to just be the debt that I know some people need. And that's so true, bro. Like, I remember being like, like I, I had a fucked up childhood too. And I remember just wanting my mom to tell me that it was going to be okay. Like things was just going to be okay. Like it just felt so turbulent all the fucking time that I just wanted someone to basically just have that reassurance. And that's amazing that you're being that reassurance to these kids, not even kids, the people. There's just, it's people. You don't got no fucking age limit coming to talk to you. <laughs> like I read the comments, there's people that were in prison already and they're praising you, like coming out and saying this stuff and, and putting it to it straight. And it's, it's amazing, man. Like, I think that you should take on an official mentorship role for these people. Have you thought about that in any capacity? Maybe speaking to the schools in your area or even you could do it virtually. It doesn't even have to be on in your area now, but being able to have the people reach out to you and speak to you and, and be able to hear firsthand experiences, you know, those, those experiences, they could save somebody their life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, man, it's funny. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, first, I'm gonna say, I pro I think I had one year left at this time. I was in the hole, and uh, I used to post my Snapchat on my TikTok all the time. And you know, people hit me up about advice, like, "Hey, I caught a charge. What you think about this?" And I used to always talk to them. And you know, TikTok, they got a lot of kids on there. 
And uh, man, one night I was about to go to sleep. I was getting ready to put my phone up. Somebody sent me a message on TikTok and I wasn't about to open it. And I opened it and there was a little dude sent me a voice message. He said he was 15. You know, his little girlfriend cheated on him or whatever the case, he was crying. And he was seriously talking about, like, I'm just about to end it, bro. I'm about to end my life. I'm about to end it. And you know, that was like the end of the world to him. You know what I'm saying? And I kept trying to call him on video chat. He wouldn't answer. So I just started responding in the voice messages. And I was just telling him, like, bro, you know, at the end of the day, bro, stuff happens. You know what I'm saying? If you end your life right now, you would never, ever, ever had a another opportunity to even maybe find a woman that's made for you. Maybe you went through this, you know, as an experiment, not an experiment, but like maybe you needed this to have you prepared for the woman that's really for you and that's going to treat you right and stuff. And man, we sat there and talked for about like an hour, man. Then he told me he was straight. He appreciate me. And, um, you know, I still kind of chit chat with him a little bit right now to this day. You know, man, that that made I couldn't even go to sleep that night. I promise you, I was laying in my bed, smiling, rubbing my feet together. I felt like <laughs> I really accomplished something. Like I was like, damn. Like you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking like, man, what if that's somebody just playing games or something? But he was crying for real. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, damn, I just really. Me from a prison cell, I just saved somebody's life. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's funny that you asked me about um speaking or whatever because this morning i woke up this morning man i don't know what it where i got this this ambition from today because i had always been thinking about motivation and speaking but today i just had like a i just had some extra energy man and i got on my phone i went down in the basement where it's quiet at and i literally went to calling the uh i went to calling first i called Boards of Education in Atlanta. I called in Montgomery, Alabama. I called in Detroit. I think I called one in South and North Carolina. And um, I'm trying to speak to the big dog over the school system, whoever it is, principal, whatever. You know, I was just telling them pretty much what I've been through and uh, that I wanted to come to the middles and high schools and speak to the students. I think that they will relate to me better because, like, how I'm talking right now, how I'm trying to, you know, be careful with my words and make sure I articulate it the right way. When I'm talking to them, I'm not talking like that. I'm talking to them the same way they talk in the streets, how they use they slang. I'm talking the same way. I pretty much, in a way, dress the same way. And I'm 28 years old. So if I go to a high school and somebody 18, 19 years old, 17, and I'm talking the regular lingo that they talking, but I'm speaking on telling them how I think they'll receive it better from me versus a 50-year-old in a suit coming in there saying, y'all better do the right thing. You know what I'm saying? Pretty much they all gave me an email address or they took my information and I'm trying to have it lined up for when school starts back up. Um, I didn't even think to ask them about nothing virtual, but you know, that may be next on my list, but I was just trying to have it lined up for, you know, when school come back in, just let me come in here and talk to these, these students, you know what I'm saying? That's, that's just, I just did that this morning. Like it wasn't a plan or nothing. I just woke up and just went and got on the phone and went to calling around.
that's beautiful, man. That's fucking that's that's the Lord whispering in your ear right there. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I it's that's your calling, man. You got this way with words and how on your videos, it, it just flows out of you. It's like you're just rapping the song out and it just it's just perfect from beginning to the end. It's captivating. You got a gift. Yeah, you got a gift for damn sure. When, when it comes to helping and, and guiding other people, are, are you thinking ahead of yourself for like in the next year, maybe few years, or is it just one day at a time here? Like, like do you have a master plan of where you want to see yourself in the next couple of years? Or is it just, like I said, one day at a time right now? Um, as of right now, I mean, I know that in the future, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be very successful, but one thing I learned about myself in writing, I used to write a lot in prison too. And uh, I used to buy a lot of books on learning how to write books like novels. And over the years, you know, whenever I feel myself getting stuck or whatever, people used to always tell me like, man, you got to plan your stories out. Why is you just going off the top of the head, plan your stories out? So I had bought a book. And I learned that it's two type of writers. You got one called a planner and you got one called a pantser. And the planner sits there and he plan everything out. He know what the next 20 chapters gonna be. But the pantser, his ideas just flow so vividly that he don't like the planning process. And I kind of feel like that's my life outside of writing. You know what I'm saying? Cause like, even when hustling and stuff, I might say, okay, I might got me a small something to sell. And I know I eventually want to have a big something to sell. But instead of sitting here like, okay, I'm gonna do this much that I don't even do that. I just let it go how it go. And then next thing you know, I got what I want. Yeah, man, that's a gift. That's definitely a gift. Is uh, Oh, go ahead, Mark. Oh, I was just gonna say, um, we've kept you on here for an hour, but before we close out, we just wanted to ask if, if, if you could go back and give your younger self just one piece of advice, what would it be besides not robbing people? <laughs> um, if I could give my younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? I probably would have told myself something like, you know, no matter what you're going through and no matter what you go through, you know, as, as long as you, even if you can't see it, as long as you just trust the process and understand that you got to go through it, that at the end of the tunnel, it's going to be all right. I probably would have told, if I would have told myself that, I probably would have stressed way less. Absolutely. Before we go, where uh, where could we find you? What's your socials? Or do you want to shout someone out? Or do you want uh, do you have anything else you want to tell us? Is there anything else you want to share? Yeah, man. I just shout out, like I say, my family. You know, my mama, my immediate family, pretty much. My brother, D.C., that ain't my real brother, but he became my brother when he showed me that he had love for me, like he my brother, you know what I'm saying? And, um, you know, man, to anybody, especially, you know, the work I'm trying to do is pretty much for anybody, but I feel like 
I'm mainly targeting teens and early adults because, you know, when you're in that that age, if you don't have the right guidance, I feel like you are prone to fuck up your life far quicker than a 30-year-old that has 10 or 15 years of experience of life on you. You know what I'm saying? So that's my specific target area. But man, anybody listening, you know, you're young, you got family members that may be in that age bracket that, you know, doing things in life or whatever. Just like I said, man, no matter how hard it get, no matter what you go through, a lot of things that we do out of anger or out of thinking, you know, we need to do this to gain this. Most of the time is not worth it. And if you just take that, just trust that from a person that did something that wasn't worth it and spent the last almost decade years of his life in high security prisons. You know, you just take that from me and, and trust when I say it is not worth it, man. You know what I'm saying? I promise you, you will regret it. You know, my socials, uh, Instagram is TheRealBill1. It's D-A, Real Bill with the number one. My TikTok is um, TheBillG. And my YouTube is Bill Feezy, F-E-E-Z-Z-Y-Y. Awesome, Bill. Thank you so much for coming on tonight, bro. <laughs> Absolutely, bro. Absolute pleasure. And I can't wait to keep following what you're up to on, on all your socials. Yeah, most definitely. Hopefully, man, hopefully next time you see me on social, you, you catch me at a school or something at the auditorium talking to these kids and see what type of feedback we get. And I'm, I'm, I'm mainly targeting the rougher areas, the rougher schools where... Mm -hmm. You know, they they fighting and some maybe gun violence going on. I'm I'm targeting those type of people because man, man, they don't they don't really know what the end of the road looks like if you don't change up. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like the older people used to always tell us you're gonna end up dead or in jail. You know, we used to be like, man, watch out, ain't nobody about to end up dead or in jail, but that is literally the only outcome. But I'm just gonna deliver it a different way than saying you're gonna end up dead or in jail. Nah, I'ma talk to them and and just, you know, get them real experiences, real situations. And you know, hopefully that do it. I'll be waiting for the book, buddy. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, We're gonna have to have you on again, Bill, because you got so many stories, my bro. Like we, we just had to get the the audience a primer tonight of of you and a bit of your story and where you're going with it. So we want you to come back on at another time and, and we'll get fucking deep into some shit. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, bro. This is the Broken Home Podcast. I hope you all have a great week and we'll talk to you all next time. All right, y'all have a good one.